Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Christina Holdridge teaches about being Jesus' famous women. Enjoy. It's great to be here again, round two. All right, two out of 10, we're here. That's good. Um, I meant to bring with me a book that I was gonna tell you about, but I'm still gonna tell you about, about it even though I forgot to bring the book with me. So maybe I'll bring it next month, but I just wanted to real quick plug a book. I feel like the topic of womanhood is a little bit challenging. Um, maybe not for everybody in the room and maybe not for every generation, but um, depending on who you are and where you live and when you grew up, maybe some of the parts about womanhood, womanhood and our culture and what the Bible said, it could just be a little sticky and a little tricky. Anyway, so the best book, my all-time favorite book on the subject is just called Women and God, and it's by an author named Kathleen Nielsen. So I'll bring it next time and I'll show it to you. But I think the subtitles like hard, uh, good truths for hard questions or something like that. So she kind of addresses some big things and then just some of those more sticky points and just gives you a really good biblical, um, solid understanding of the beauty of God's design and his intention for women all throughout scripture. So Women and God by Kathleen Nelson. That's my little plug. Okay, so last time um, we started, and I, I sort of told you a little embarrassing secret about myself, about how crazy I am about my dog. And I'm going to start with another little secret about myself, but it's probably not really a secret to you. So I'm not a real blonde. Are you so shocked? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> There's probably nine out of 10 blondes in the room are not real blondes anymore. But I used to have blonde hair for like 12 or maybe 13 years of my life growing up, which makes me a legitimate blonde, I think. I had lovely, sparkly, golden blonde hair. And then somewhere around the age of, I don't know, 13 or 14, maybe like a lot of you if you were blonde, that beautiful golden color started fading away. And for me, it got taken over by this ugly, dirty dishwater, dull, dingy <laughs> color. There's no good. So by 15, I took it upon myself to restore my hair back to its original design. <laughs> I think you know where I'm going with this. So whether it was uh, treatments of lemon juice and sitting in the hot San Jose sun for hours or bottles of sun in and a blow dryer late at night with some girlfriends or eventually more grown up things like appointments at hair salons. I'll, over the last 30 years, I have done everything I could to get my hair back to that original sparkly golden blonde and nothing, of course, has ever worked perfectly, partly because, well, six to eight weeks later, whatever was there starts, you know. So it's pretty much impossible. But not only has my color changed, thanks to age, my hair is thinner, coarser, duller, 
and weirder after pregnancies, frizzier than my 12-year-old self. Pretty much my hair is everything that a shampoo bottle advertises it's gonna fix. That's my hair. And I have a feeling in one way or another, you guys can all relate. I mean, maybe some of you have amazing hair and I'm glad for you, but surely you have noticed something about the way you look deteriorating. We have all got lines and lumps where there were none previously. I mean, for heaven's sake, the other day I noticed I have wrinkles on my earlobes. I do, I have little tiny wrinkles on my earlobes. I'm like, I'm only 43. So this is the reality, right? Time changes us all. And our bodies are just in a natural state. It's totally natural, but they're in a natural state of deterioration. And no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, these physical bodies of ours are breaking down. They're going on a path, sad to say, but maybe not so sad anyway, of going from better to worse, right? And I don't really mean to be depressing. I don't think that aging is ugly or bad. I honestly want to embrace every change that God has with aging and just take it as it comes with grace. But it's just kind of a fact, right, that our bodies are deteriorating. And ultimately, if we look around, in one sense, we all know everything is. No new car ever stays perfect. No fresh cut flowers ever stay perky forever. Everything really is on this trajectory of deterioration. But, yay, there's one exception. You see, in the beginning, when God created humanity, he made us in his image. He made us to look like him, to be like him. And that was his original design and purpose. But sin has done to our souls what aging does to our bodies. It has broken it down. It's disfigured the image of God in us. But as believers in Jesus, that image, we can be restored back to our original design. What sin has deteriorated, Jesus can bring back increasingly over time. And that's what we're gonna talk about tonight the beautiful possibility of God's image being restored in us. Because Jesus' famous women, that's what we're here tonight to be, are being restored by Christ. So our anchor scripture for the message is found in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And if you want to turn there, you can. We're going to kind of be there and then bouncing around, but that's kind of where we'll, what we're really going to look at tonight. And here's what it says. It says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So basically what this verse teaches is that if you are a believer in Christ, you've had a veil of sorts removed from your face so that you can see, so that you can take in God in all of his glory. And as you do that, you will be transformed more and more into becoming like him. And it's that verse, it's this truth that can give us hope, that we can have God's image restored in us. So here's how our time's gonna go tonight. First, we're gonna look at why do we need to be restored? Now, I already said it a little bit, right? It's because of sin, but we're gonna dig into that a whole lot deeper. And then we're gonna study what 
God wants to restore us too. Yes, he wants to restore his image in us. But what does that really mean? What does that look like? And then finally, we're going to talk about how. How does that restoration or transformation process happen? All right, so let's start with the why. First, we need transformation because two reasons. Original sin initiated that decay of God's image in us. So in the first two chapters of Genesis, God created humanity, like we said just a minute ago, and he made us in his image. And when he was finished on that sixth day of creation, he said it was very good. What he made in us was very good. He described everything else in creation as good, but he described humanity in his image as very good. And God placed us all in a garden, a beautiful garden where everything was perfect, right? And we had everything that we could possibly need, and we were in perfect relational harmony with God and man. Right there, God's image was stamped on us, and it was on full display, nothing getting in the way of it. And in God's divine wisdom and goodness, he put in us free will, meaning God intentionally made us women who were free to choose whether we wanted to obey or disobey, whether we wanted to follow or do our own thing. He gave us that choice. And sure enough, most of you know the story. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve chose to disobey rather than obey. And when they did that, sin entered our perfect world. The results were awful. Sin's entrance separated us from God relationally. It brought inevitable physical and spiritual death. And that death wasn't immediate, right? Adam and Eve didn't just fall down dead right there the minute they disobeyed. Instead, sin's entrance began a process of decaying and deteriorating everything, including God's image in us. And it's important to know that sin didn't destroy forever God's image in us. It didn't take God's image away. Wayne Grudem, in his book on systematic theology, he says, though sinful man was still in the image of God, in every aspect of life, parts of that image were distorted or lost. So who God originally designed for us to be is not who we are now. So why do we need restoration? Because the very entrance of sin into our world broke down our capacity to reflect the image of God. Secondly, we need restoration because I hope you all know, but we battle with the effects of original sin every single day. The Bible teaches in Romans 5:12 that we have all sinned. Here's what it says. It says, "Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through that sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Then later in Romans 7, Paul says this. Listen to this. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I don't want to do is what I keep on doing. Now, If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
You see, Adam and Eve committed the first sin, right? But after that, all of us have done the same. That's what we just learned. And daily, like Paul said, we battle with the temptation to sin over and over again. And I think it's important for us to remember that tonight, that we need transformation not because of just what Adam and Eve did, breaking down the process of our original design, but because sin is really alive in each of our hearts right now. Our original purpose to reflect the beauty and the goodness of our creator in a million ways, because of sin in me right now, I don't. Sometimes, too often, I'm sure, we do ourselves a great disservice by sort of undervaluing sin in us. We like to sort of write off its presence in our hearts. Sometimes we dismiss it. Sometimes we minimize it. Sometimes we excuse it. Maybe we justify it. And when we do that, when we think, I'm basically okay, I don't do all those really bad, obvious things, we miss out on seeing our very real need for transformation. All the potential of God's beautiful image to be displayed in us, to the world around us, it's just limited to a few gross, big sins that we think we would never commit, which, by the way, usually begin with those small, innocent sins that we excuse. It's like thinking that you finished restoring a vintage dresser by putting new knobs on it, and that's it. It's done. There's so much more beauty to be uncovered, and there's so much more restoration of God's image in us that he wants to bring out in us by dealing with all of our sin bit by bit over time. And I just encourage you tonight, please take sin seriously Maybe it's a habit you have of wanting something that God hasn't given you. Maybe you want more money. Maybe you want a better house or a better husband or someone else's personality or a different body. Don't excuse it. Don't minimize it. Just confess it. Say, God, I'm wanting something that you have not seen fit to give to me. I'm discontent. I'm coveting. Please forgive me and change me. That's it. And when we do that, On the regular, we're opening the door for restoration of God's image to happen in a part of our heart. We make a way for his image to be restored and reflected. Like I said, sometimes we undervalue sin, but sometimes we overvalue sin. And I want to talk about that for a minute too. When we overvalue sin, when we do this, we start to believe and to act as if change is not actually possible for us, especially sometimes in just like a specific area of our hearts. Maybe a certain sin, a certain habit, a certain way of thinking, maybe it's been a part of us for so long, we feel like it's practically who we are. We can't even imagine being separate or free from it. And that Well, that also is a great disservice to ourselves. Maybe we would never say out loud, you know, I don't believe that change is possible. But practically, we can all drift toward that thinking. And in doing so, we close ourselves off to God's restoring work. And once again, we are missing out. So much of God's beautiful image that he wants to restore in us gets closed off. He wants us to believe with all confidence that his restoration is possible in any area of our heart. 
Our verse tonight says that those who know Jesus are being transformed. In Romans 12, 2, Paul encourages us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Hebrews 10, 14 says that we as believers are are being made holy. That means transformation, according to scripture, is absolutely, without a doubt, 100% possible. And do you believe that? Do you believe that God can change any area of your heart? Any struggle you've had? Do you believe that God could free you, actually free you more and more over time from fear or worry? Do you think that with God it's possible for you to become more confident and secure in his love, less insecure and needy of other people's approval? Do you believe that transformation is possible in any way? I really hope you do. Our verse tonight says it. The whole Bible says it. And where you struggle to believe like I do sometimes, let's just be like that, that dad in Mark chapter 9 who said, Lord, I believe, but, you know, help my unbelief. And to be clear, it's not as if transformation is dependent on the strength of our belief. That's not what I'm trying to say. But when we do believe that God could restore any part of us, It's like we freely bring to him every part of us. It's like we give him greater access to restore his beautiful image in any way he wants. So we need restoration. We do. Because from the beginning, sin has deteriorated God's image that's that's being reflected in me. And because of my present temptation of sin right now. That's our why. The next question we're going to address is the what. What is God restoring us to? Now, we've said already that he's restoring us into his image, but what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? Before we get to the specifics of that, I want to stop for a second, and I want you guys to think about this with me. The culture around us has a lot to say about what and who we should be like. So before we talk about scripture, I think it's a good idea for us to tune in to some of the messages that we are receiving regularly without maybe sometimes even realizing it. As John Stone Street, the president of the Colson Center says, most people are not aware of how culture is shaping them. They're like the proverbial fish who don't even know they're wet. Culture is to humans as water is to fish. So if you're not intentionally stepping outside of culture and trying to look at it, trying to evaluate it, and trying to intentionally understand it, then you end up swimming in culture's waters. He just means that too often we don't realize how impacted we are by the culture around us. But here's the truth. Every book we read, every website we scroll, every news article we take in from any source any song that we listen to, every social media page that we spend any time at all on, all of that is culture. It's not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily good. But all of it is culture, and all of it is seeking to send us a message about who we should be as women. I think the messages of culture to us as women kind of fit into three broad categories. So hang with me while I tell you about them. The first category of messages about who you should be as women, here it is. It's the acceptance, not change message. 
We hear this all the time. It's like an underlying theme in movies and books. This message says that we as women, we don't really need transformation at all. It says our best selves are naturally inside of us. And if we could just get rid of the idea of changing at all, if we could just accept ourselves and embrace ourselves for who we already are naturally, then a free, joyful, fulfilling life would follow. That's message number one. Message number two is the you decide message. This one comes to us from all kinds of angles too. This message says, you women, you ought to be free. You ought to be free to define for yourself. Who do you want to be? If it means change, great. You decide. You decide for yourself. You define yourself. And if you want change, it's fine as long as you've decided it and you've decided what you want to change into. That's another message I think we get from culture. And then there's the third big message that a lot of little messages fit into. And it's the culture defines who we should be. This is a broad one. And it says you should be, you should be transformed into whatever culture in the moment says is good and valuable. Culture decides who you should be. This is probably the most confusing message because depending on where you live and when, culture is constantly changing and holding up impossible usually contradictory qualities that we, should, we as women should be. Let me see if you relate to any of these. Here's a few. This is all culture telling you what you should be. You should be intelligent. You should be well-educated and have a fulfilling and meaningful career and pursue education and career at all costs. That's one message. You should also be beautiful, fit, sexy, pursue outward self-improvement through any means necessary. Maybe diet, exercise, makeup, hairstyles, clothing, surgery, nothing should be holding you back from being the most beautiful that you can be. Here's another message. You should be an entrepreneur. Girl, boss it, baby. Be creative. Be a money maker. Answer to no one at any time. You be the boss of you. You should be an entrepreneur. Here's another message. You should be a humanitarian. Live a life that's going to impact society for good. Go start GoFundMes and clean water campaigns and march for good causes and only own five sustainable items of clothing for the rest of your life. You should be a humanitarian. Also, you should live a life that satisfies you. You should eat great food. You should travel to amazing places. You should go on grand adventures. Whatever makes you happy, you should do it. YOLO. This is, this is what is worth living for. So you should live a life that makes you happy. And the list from culture goes on and on. So what do we do with all these messages? We have to figure out, do they conflict? with the image of himself that God wants to restore in us? I think so. According to scripture, the acceptance not change message, that one's wrong because Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Ephesians 4, 20 says we should put off our old selves because they're corrupt. So without transformation, me by myself, according to scripture, Well, I'm left with a corrupt, deceitful, and wicked heart. Sounds like I need change. 
And the you decide for yourself message, well, that falls short because Ephesians 2.10, according to scripture, Ephesians 2.10 says we're not our own workmanship. It says that we are God's workmanship created for his purposes. So maybe I shouldn't be the one deciding after all. And of course, the culture defines messages. Well, that's off because scripture says right in our verse tonight that we should be changed to be like Christ. He is our supreme goal. Any change that isn't reflective of who he is, it can't be good for us. So I just encourage you tonight, as believers, we have got to step out of culture sometimes and try to evaluate, think about the messages that are coming to us, the messages we're really swimming in, and just compare them with scripture. They're not always awful. Some of the, there's really good things that the world holds up as good that are legitimately good. They just might not be the most important thing. But when it conflicts with scripture, we've got to let scripture We've got to let who God says and what God says, that has to rule our minds and our hearts above anything else. So God's not interested in transforming us into a woman who simply accepts themselves. And he's not interested in letting us decide who we want to be. And he's definitely, excuse me, not interested in transforming us into what the culture says around, the culture around us says. He's interested in restoring us into his image. So what does that mean? In Genesis, if we reread the creation account altogether right now, well, we could see that in chapter 1, verse 27, it says this. We've been talking about this a lot, so I'm just kind of being redundant. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's really important for you to know that tonight. I keep repeating it, right? We need to know that all people... Men and women, weak or strong, whether they know Jesus or not, everyone has been made in God's image. And that image can never be taken out of us. It can only be covered up or weakened by sin. But it's that fact that we've been made in God's image that gives all of humanity, everywhere, at any time, supreme value and worth. So, In one sense, the transformation process that 2 Corinthians 3.18 is talking about is really, like I said earlier, a restoration process. Because God's transforming us into the image that he already put inside of us so long ago. In one way, if we want to know what the image of God looks like, well, we can look at what the creation account tells us um, before Adam and Eve sinned. They can show us some of God's image on display in humanity. So I'm going to tell you five things about Adam and Eve before sin that show us some of what God's image looks like. I'm going to kind of go through it quickly here. Number one, we can see that God made both men and women to rule over creation. That's what Genesis 1, 26 and 28 says. He made them to rule over something with purpose and with function. That is part of what it looks like to image God. And that book I was telling you about by Kathleen Nelson, the way she describes this is just when anything from a farmer cultivating a good crop to a scientist developing a helpful medicine to a choir making a beautiful song with all their voices, all of that is imaging God by ruling over creation. Secondly, God made man and women before sin to be fruitful and to multiply. 
That's what Genesis 1:28 says. So obviously this has a very physical meaning, right? God wanted Adam and Eve to have kids, but there is another layer to it. To image God means to bear spiritual fruit, to multiply by making disciples. I mean, in the New Testament, Jesus says things like, abide in me, you probably know it, and you'll bear much fruit, right? He told his disciples, go and make disciples. So there's a real spiritual fruit and a spiritual multiplication that comes with this. So being made in God's image means that we have the capacity to be fruitful and to multiply, sometimes physically, but always spiritually. Um, Number three, God made men and women to be in relational harmony. In verse 27, God said, let, of chapter one, God said, let us make man in our image. It's the Trinity talking. All three parts of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are always, at all times, in perfect unity with one another. So that means that us, made in God's image, we too have the capacity for unity and relational harmony. Number four, God gave them the capacity, I love this one, to obey his commands. God specifically commanded Adam to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And later in chapter three, Eve referenced the same command, so that means she heard it too. So it must mean, even though God gave us the ability to choose, the freedom to choose, he had to have given us the ability before sin ever came in to also obey him. Remember, James 1 teaches that God does not tempt us. So before sin, if God told Adam and Eve to obey, that means that by being made in his image, they had the capacity to do it. And so do we. And finally, fifth, God made um, sorry men and women uniquely different with distinct roles meant to complement one another. God made men and women intentionally different, both in their bodies and their roles. They were meant to show distinction that would complement. They were created equally. And in some ways, they were commanded to do a lot of the same things. But in Genesis 2, when we see a more specific picture of woman's creation by God, he makes a distinction both with their bodies and their roles. And again, that's before sin. So part of imaging their creator was living out those distinctions. Unfortunately, beyond that, there is no one perfect list anywhere in scripture. There is no one golden verse that gives me the exact qualities of what it means or looks like to image God. Well, what about this one? Colossians 1.15 says, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You see, the truth is, to understand best what the image of God looks like, and that's what we're trying to do right now, we just have to look at Jesus. His entire life was lived, showing us who God was, what, who God is, and what he is like. And those things that we just talked about real quick from the creation account, those things that were Adam and Eve displaying God's image before sin was in the world, Jesus lived out those things perfectly after sin came into the world. He's actually a better picture of those qualities and so much more. Think about it. 
Jesus ruled over creation perfectly. He lived in absolute relational harmony. He had the most fruitful life and was the best disciple maker. He obeyed the Father without exception, and he embraced his distinct role and lived it out without fault. And of course, there's so much more to Jesus than that. He was kind and he was loving and he was wise and he was faithful and he was compassionate and he was merciful and he never lied or was selfish. He wasn't practically perfect in every way like Mary Poppins. He was perfect in every way. So to define God's image, what it looks like, we just look to Jesus. And while we will never be perfect until we're glorified with God in heaven, we can transform to become more and more like him. Jesus perfectly imaged the Father whose image is in us, and that image can be restored over time as we trust in him. And remember, set your sights on being changed to be like Jesus and watch out for those cultural messages that seek, you, seek to change you into something different than him. So now we've talked about the why, and we've talked about the what, and we're at the last section. How? How does this transformation process happen? First Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 3.18 gives us four things, okay? The first is that our verse teaches us how to deal with sin. And if we don't deal with sin, then transformation can never happen. If you guys go back to 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says this at the very beginning. It might have confused you, like, what in the world? It says, we all with unveiled face. And in a sense, hang in there with me, the remedy to our sin is to become a woman with an unveiled face. Then transformation can begin. You see, Starting in verse 7, all of chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians, where our verse comes from, all of chapter 3 is talking about something called the New Covenant and something called the Old Covenant. And they're talking about it mostly during Moses' day. And these two covenants, they're just two different ways of trying to deal with guilt and sin and trying to be closer to God. One way of thinking about the Old Covenant is just when a person tries to deal with their guilt, with their sin, by doing good things, by not doing bad things, by following rules. And all of this is an effort to relieve them of that awful, guilty feeling that they're stuck with and to maybe help them to get closer to God. Doing good things, not doing bad things, that's the old covenant. The new covenant is when a person asks Jesus to deal with their sin. They know they never really fully can. They trust Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to be the only thing that can eliminate their guilt and make them close to him. Chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, in verse 16, it says this, when we turn to Jesus, when we trust Jesus to deal with our sin, we have a veil removed from our eyes. So that's step number one in the transformation process. We have to have that veil turned. We have to deal with our sin by coming to Jesus. What's next? Well, do you see it there in our verse? It says, we all with unveiled face beholding the image of God. That's the next step. In the book of Exodus, chapter 34, 
there was a guy named Moses. You probably heard about him. He parted the Red Sea. He was able to have face-to-face contact, interactions, personal encounters with God in the tabernacle. And after he did that, after he hung out with Jesus in a very personal, well, not Jesus, God, um, in a very personal way, he would come out and his face would glow. It would shine. And it would reflect to the Israelites the glory of God that he had just encountered. Over time, that shiny face would fade and Moses would cover his face so that the Israelites wouldn't see the glory passing. And then Moses would go back in the tabernacle and he would have another beautiful encounter with the Lord and the glory would be reflected again. That's the context for our chapter tonight. So when it says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory, that's calling back to that story of Moses. He interacted with God personally and intimately and it changed him temporarily. And it changed him so much that it was reflected to the people around him. So for us, a similar but better thing can happen. Like Moses, we can behold God and it can change us. And beholding is not really a complicated concept to understand. Beholding is just putting a long, steady gaze on something. Beholding is not glancing. It's not distracted or easily interrupted. It's a focused, intentional, thoughtful study of God. And for us, this gaze, this beholding, what has to come of God has to come from his word. That's our only way of actually seeing him right. His word has to be the thing that defines him and and where we learn about him and where we know him. So we put a long and steady and focused gaze on him from his word. And our verse tells us right here tonight that as we do that, his image in us will be restored bit by bit over time. And then, like Moses, that glory can be reflected to everybody around us. Now, the next thing I want you to know from our verse is it says that we will be transformed into his image. And then did you catch that? From one degree of glory to another. That means that God's image in us can be restored increasingly, but over time. Increasingly means something really good for us. It means that not like Moses or unlike Moses, who reflected some of God's glory and then it faded over time, we can be changed to reflect more and more and more and more of God's glory. We can get better over time so that by the end of my life, I can look more like Jesus than I do right now or I did last year. Glory. glory. I think that's incredible. But it also says over time, and I think that it's important that we remember one degree of glory to another means that this process takes time. For some of us, that means we got to be patient. We got to tell ourselves those verses about he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, but it's not overnight. You see, for real and deep and genuine heart restoration to happen. It's a long and steady process, even just in one area of your life. 
Think about this with me. Maybe you struggle with unforgiveness. And maybe by beholding God from his word, by studying God, you see how incredible his forgiveness is. And you want that part of his image restored in you. You're tired of the tendency you have to feel bitterness, to hold grudges, to replay the same memories over and over again in your head. I want you to know that this verse tells us that the process takes time. The capacity to forgive, it might come in small bits, a little bit more year after year. Till one day you wake up and you realize, oh my gosh, I haven't thought about that awful thing that that person did to me for like three months. And I used to think about it every day. Be patient. Don't give up. Keep on beholding him and inviting his restoration process into your heart. He's going to be faithful. He will transform you from one degree of glory to another. And then lastly, here's the last way it happens. It says, by the spirit of the Lord. It's so important for us to remember this, you guys. Here's what is not supposed to happen. We spend some beholding time and we recognize the need for God's image to be restored in us. Maybe this time we're not talking about forgiveness, we're talking about gentleness. And we are amazed by Jesus's gentleness. It's so beautiful and impressive and we wanna be just like him. And so we make a chart and we list all the times that we struggle with harshness and we notice the times of day and the contributing factors and we try to change it all. So from now on, we make sure we are well fed and well rested and on very high alert before coffee and maybe around three and definitely at the end of the day and we promise ourselves that we are going to respond with perfect gentleness in every tough situation. So with great effort and discipline, we try to change ourselves. And honestly, I'm not saying that any of that is actually bad by itself. I just want you to know that real change, heart change, like the capacity to feel gentle in a moment when you would respond normally with feeling, let alone voicing harshness, that feeling, that heart change, that can only come by God's spirit. He can, but only he can change your heart. So it doesn't mean that you just sit around waiting to become more gentle and excusing it all the while while you're not. But the greatest role that we can play is beholding and confession and prayer and then trusting that God's spirit will do a work because restoration is only ever by his spirit. So let's conclude our time together by reading our verse one last time. Because my hope is that this verse is more alive and more meaningful to you than it ever was before. My hope is that you can put it in your pocket now and know it and understand it and pull it out and remind yourself of the hope of transformation, of the goodness of transformation, of the possibility of transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So tonight I exhorted you from this verse with six things. I said, don't undervalue your sin. Know that you need regular restoration so that you can reflect God's image. And then I said, don't overvalue your sin either. Believe that God, believe that with God, real change is actually possible in any area of your heart. And then I said, pay attention to the messages of culture and submit to scripture whenever those two are in conflict. I told you to prioritize and protect. I mean, I didn't say it outrightly, but I hope you picked up on it. Prioritize and protect time beholding God. And then I hope you left with the knowledge that you have to be patient for this restoration process because it takes time. So be patient. And then finally, remember that real heart change only ever comes by his spirit. And so that's it. With that, I leave you hopefully more confident than ever that God's spirit has a beautiful and restorative work that he wants to do in you. Can I pray for you? Let's pray. God, your image is just who it is in Jesus is so beautiful. We want that. And it's almost unbelievable sometimes to me that that can actually come out of my heart and my mouth and my life, that I could actually reflect you. But man, I'm so thankful for that. And I'm in awe of it, but I want it, Lord. And I imagine that every woman in this room is wanting that same thing. So Lord, we just invite your transformation, your restoration process. We invite it right now into our lives more than maybe we ever have. Help us to bring things to you that we just never believed were possible to change before. Lord, I pray that even by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see things that we've closed off to you and said, that's just not even possible. I'll never be different than that. Open our eyes to see those things. Give us hope and patience with your transformation and your restoration process. But God, I pray also that you would help us to see you, that that when we do take time to be with you, you would just do something beautiful, Lord, something that we can't force, but where your spirit takes your word and opens our eyes to see it in an amazing way so that we're changed. So open our eyes to see you from your word, Lord. Make those times that we try to spend with you just really valuable, really helpful, really fruitful to us. And Lord, we just invite your transformation process, your restoration process into our hearts. And we look forward to the day that we're more like you than we are right now. And we believe that that's coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.